Let me open our time in prayer. Lord, we are grateful to you for the opportunity to be together. Lord, this is such a privilege and an honor. Lord, I pray that even in this session that you would challenge our hearts, that you would encourage hearts, that you would cause us to examine ourselves. And through this session and everything that happens this week, that your church would be strengthened, that your kingdom would be advanced to your praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right. The Bible makes clear that a qualification for spiritual leadership in the church begins at home, that the home is managed well. In fact, the Bible says the home must be managed well. And that term encompasses marriage and parenting, and we're going to consider both of those topics as we focus on 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. Those were the verses that were assigned to me a couple weeks ago. So for context, I want to uh, just read this very familiar passage to you um, as a reminder and for some context. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Leadership in the church, by definition, is life in a fishbowl, isn't it? The church and the outside world has visibility, even where you and I might be uncomfortable with that, behind closed doors in our home. There is no more visible evidence to the world of life-changing impact and the blessings of the gospel than your home and my home. And I have to note up front, from what I just read, that having a good reputation outside the church, as it says in verse 7, is very often tied to what you think is the privacy of your own home. What we're talking about today is critical. It's the front lines of Satan's attack on the design and authority of God's word and God's design for the family. It was true in the Garden of Eden, and it's true today. It's the primary um, line of attack. And perhaps that's why, in the wisdom of God, a man's qualifications for spiritual leadership is dependent on how he manages his home. I just read that to you. And we're going to move pretty quickly. Um, I recognize that a lot of what I'm going to say today probably isn't new to you. It's an opportunity for all of us to examine ourselves. Eldership is not a lifetime appointment. A failure in qualification at home can and has been the end of an otherwise seemingly effective ministry. I want to help you with leadership development as you consider identifying and appointing new elders in your church. I want to encourage those of you who are, by God's grace, living what we're going to talk about today, not in perfection, but you're living it. I want to encourage you, stay focused. Stay faithful, excel still more, understand that this area of your life is important. It is introduced after the word 
must. It's not optional. What happens in the home matters. God knows. Your family knows what happens in the home. Your church knows, or they must know. There's similarities between leadership in the home and spiritual leadership in the church. We probably all are very familiar with that, but there's also significant differences. And I think it's important to note those differences as we look at 1 Timothy 3, particularly verse 5, which I read, where, and you're familiar with this, where it says, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of the church? And let me run through some of the contrasts between leadership in the home and leadership in the church. The name of the leader in the home is who? Father, husband. The leadership of the church, their title is what? Elder or pastor, shepherd. I'm going to use the term elder or pastor. It's the same thing. Leadership in the home is not optional. Once you walk down the aisle and say, I do, whether you're good at it or not, you are called to leadership. It is not optional. It's mandatory. The contrast in the church is that leadership in the church, is that mandatory or optional? It is optional. I read that to you, right? 1 Timothy 3.1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. It's optional. So as we consider elders, we're not considering a position that a man must aspire to. It is a position that he might aspire to. And just because he aspires to it does not mean he is qualified for it. Which takes us to the next point. The function in the church is, or in the home is to manage. You saw that. You heard that in 1 Timothy 5. The function of leadership in the church is to what? Care for the church. Qualification to lead the home is saying, I do. There are no qualifications other than that. There's qualifications to do it well. But if you have children and they're going to get married and they happen to be sons, they're going to be leaders. Should scare some of you. (laughs) Scared me as a father of three daughters. That leadership in the home is not dependent on skill. It's not dependent on character, goal, or giftedness. That is directly opposed to leadership in the church, which is entirely dependent on character, giftedness, and goal, a desire to be an elder. Which men can be dads and and husbands? All men. In fact, I will say that all men must, with rare exception, contrary to our culture where most people are not getting married, if you go through Genesis 2 and 3, you understand that you and I, men, were created to be, with some rare exceptions, to be a husband and a dad. All men, again, with rare exception, are called to be husbands and fathers. Which men are called to be spiritual leaders in the church? Elders? Christian men, first of all, right? Where God created the role of husband and father in in opposition, if you will, to the role of a woman in the context of marriage for the common blessing and the common grace 
to live according to God's design, whether you're saved or not, and to live a blessed life. That's marriage. It's a different picture for elders and pastors. We must be Christian men, and there's specific qualifications, and there's unique function of elders, and there's an expectation of sound doctrine. Titus 1 talks about the ability to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. A man who cannot do that can be a husband and a father, but he can't be an elder. Eldership is optional. Oh, one other thing, the org chart. You all love org charts. I'm an accountant. I told you that. The husband is the head of who? The wife. The elder is head of what? Nothing. <laughs> Who's the head of the church? Christ. And we can never forget that. If you aspire to the office of elder, it's not to be the head of the church. It is to be an under-shepherd, to care for the shepherd that Christ has put in that church. And you hold that with an open hand. So all of that's optional, eldership. But for the man who does aspire to the office and the work of an elder and a pastor, he must, it says, have an established track record of strong, effective, and biblical leadership in his home. He must also have demonstrated a demonstrated track record of the appropriate exercise of authority and leadership in the home. And the ability to articulate and submit to the difference between the authority that a father and a husband has and the authority that an elder or a pastor has. There's a lot to explore there. That's a different session for a different year. Today, we're just going to focus on the one side of that equation, which is the home. What are each of us obliged to demonstrate in our home as a qualification to become an elder? And I would also remind you to remain an elder. I'm going to give you six characteristics. Six characteristics of how a man manages home that indicates his qualification to care for the church. And again, I don't think any of these six are going to surprise you. This is an opportunity for us, again, to examine our own house. Okay? And as a grid, maybe, to consider those who within our church aspire to the office of elder. First of all, number one, the first characteristic of a man who manages his household well is he is purposeful. He is purposeful. He has deep convictions based on sound doctrine, and those convictions define his leadership. And again, a reminder, most dads, most husbands don't have, haven't even thought about what we're going to talk about today. The difference is if you are an elder or a pastor or you aspire to that office, you must consider these things. You must think about these things. An elder's convictions as he leads his home are not built on his preferences or opinions. They are convictions and purpose def defined by Scripture. And those purposes define the goals in his home, the decisions in his home, and his habits or his disciplines in the home as he leads his home. The leadership of his wife is purposeful. Ephesians 5, and you're going to hear me reference Ephesians 5 a lot. I know it's familiar to you. But listen to this. 
Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Do you hear purpose in there? There is the purpose of your leadership of your wife. You want to lead her to sanctification. You want to point her to Christ. And you want to love her as Christ loves the church. That doesn't sound like a long to-do list. But I've been at it for 34 years and there's still lots more to do. That is purposeful. That is a purposeful husband. The leadership of children in your home is also purposeful. 1 Timothy 3, 4 I read it to you, says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. What does control mean? Well, it means subjection, that word that our culture loves, isn't it? (laughs) That is what control means. We must be, we must keep our children under control. And that doesn't mean subjection to me. That's subjection to who? To Christ. We teach our children to obey us, to teach them how to what? Obey Christ. Obey God. We're pointing them to Christ. We are called to keep our children under control. Obedience to parents is training and preparation for a life of submission and obedience to God. If you have not taught your children that, they are not under control. And it goes on to say, with all dignity, and dignity means gravity, weight. If you're dealing with children's sin, it is a serious matter, isn't it? Dealing with your own sin is a serious matter. There is a dignity and a gravity to the purpose of your parenting. Deuteronomy 6, another passage I know you're familiar with, describes how we are to lead our children to the fear of the Lord, which produces obedience. If you want obedient children, don't modify behavior. Teach them what? The fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going to possess it so that you, your son, and your grandson might fear the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. You want children under control? Teach them the fear of God. That is completely contrary to anything you're going to hear in a parenting class in our culture. Teach them the fear of God. Do you want wise, blessed children? Well, there's a, there's a linkage in Scripture over and over and over. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And wisdom leads to obedience. Probably the most obvious one is Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a good understanding or wisdom have all those who do His commandments. You want to produce wise children? Again, teach them the fear of God. That's purposeful parenting. That is your purpose. 2 Timothy 3.15 kind of lays it out. Timothy's 
or Paul is writing to a young man, Timothy, and he's reminding him that from childhood you have known the sacred writing, Scripture, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to what? Anybody know? Salvation. The wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. It's interesting. He clarifies right away that wisdom doesn't save anybody. It is the wisdom that leads to salvation. Purposeful parenting in the house. A man who aspires to leadership in the church manages his household well. He's purposeful in, the, in how he leads his wife. He's purposeful in how he leads his children. He's careful with the discipline in his home that it is consistent with and models God's discipline towards us. Out of Hebrews chapter 12, take a look at that sometime. There's nothing in there about punishment. What's in there is discipleship, shepherding, correction, training. And it talks about the results of that discipline. And when you discipline according to how God disciplines us, the result at the end of Hebrews 12 is peace. That's a man who manages his household well. And by the way, none of that saves your children, right? What do you do about that? You pray. You teach them the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. You live in the promise of 2 Timothy 3.15 that that is the wisdom that leads to salvation. There is no promise that it will lead them to salvation, but you have done your job if you've set the stage That is a man who has managed his household well. All of that is purposeful parenting. And how do you do that as a dad? Well, it goes on in Deuteronomy 6 to give you exactly how it's done. None of this is a surprise to you. You shall teach them diligently. You need to talk to them. You teach them diligently to your sons, And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. This is an ongoing, regular conversation in all phases of life. We call it what? Discipleship. A man who manages his household well is actively involved in the discipleship of his children. Men who lead their home biblically are resolute in the leadership of their wife and their children. They're on a mission, going in a direction, conviction-based, purposeful. And in all of that is a bit of a danger. And that takes us to the second characteristic of a man who manages his household well. And that is that he is humble. He is humble. I say there's a danger in that because anytime you start to exercise authority and take dependent young people and do purposeful parenting. If you're a proud man, you can fall into a trap. We need to be humble. A humble man lives in submission himself. Hopefully you and I understand we are submitters ourselves. A man who manages his household well is not the king of his home demanding the submission of his subjects and the rote adoption of all of his convictions. He is called to point his wife and children to who? To Christ. He knows the calling of his own life is submission, and he lives accordingly. He understands the gravity of the authority that's been granted as a husband and father, and he exercises that authority very carefully and humbly with responsibility. 
That is the indication that he may be ready for eldership. You see, it's not just exercising the authority, being purposeful, but it's doing it with humility. Any exercise of authority is dangerous given man's propensity to pride and tyranny. Pride is the disease. It's the cornerstone of sin. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Your children should never leave your home looking back and describing your leadership of the home as arrogance. And we have to think a little bit about authority. Matthew 28, 18, Christ says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Okay, so we're going to the org chart again. Who has all authority? It's Christ. And yet he delegates authority. And in Romans 13, 1, it says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So whenever Christ delegates authority, whether it's to the state, to the family, to the church, there are common elements in the Bible. And you can do this study on your own. What you'll find is that any authority um, that is delegated by God is delegated to imperfect human beings. And all God's men said, what? Amen. Amen. We're imperfect. That's not a mistake. It's by God's perfect design. That takes us back to the humility. Understand that. You and I aren't special because we have authority. We should be humbled because we've been given authority. All authority is delegated to imperfect human beings. And if the authority is not delegated in Scripture, you cannot claim that authority. This speaks to the need for a man to understand the limits on his authority, not um, how much authority can I take. The Bible defines authority in every context. The delegated authority is always for the good of the people and the glory of God. Always. It is never for personal gain or advantage at the expense of somebody else. All authority that's delegated in the Bible is explicitly defined and delegated as a means only to accomplish God's purposes, not mine. Not my preferences, not my politics, not my thoughts and my vision, but to implement God's purposes. All delegated authority in Scripture is directed to a specific group of people. I'm an elder in the church. That gives me no authority in your home. You understand the difference? As a dad, I have authority in my home as a dad, but that doesn't mean I can come next door to your house and tell you what you have to do. And the, the last thing is all delegated authority in Scripture is limited in scope and time. And you say, well, what about elders? Isn't that a lifetime appointment? Well, we've already noted that if you are no longer qualified, you, can no long, you are no longer what? An elder. So authority is always limited in scope and time. And if you look at Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15, I'm not going to take you there today. It's a great example of these principles This is where Jesus is sending his disciples out, and he's giving them specific authority. And you will see all of the elements of what I just walked through in Matthew chapter 10. What's the point of all of that? Authority exercised in the home by parents or a father is different than the authority exercised in the church by elders or pastors. 
The test is whether an elder understands that and leads accordingly. As you appoint elders, the only clue you might have about their inclination towards the humble exercise of authority in the church is to examine how he exercises authority where? In the home. And that's not just a suggestion. That's what 1 Timothy 3 says. You must look at his home. The clear test of 1 Timothy 3 is to look at the home, and yet that is so often overlooked. A biblical man is humble at church, and he's humble at home. And the interesting and obvious implication of the qualification to be a pastor or an elder is that a biblical man understands the authority he's been given and exercises it carefully, purposefully, with humility. We all know that the sheep bite, don't we? If you've been in ministry very long, you know it can be very humbling. It can be very difficult. Sometimes it's very, very hard. But I want to remind you about something. The Bible says that the elders are to be respected, esteemed, loved, obeyed, submitted to, and thanked. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about because the sheep bite. (laughs) Often by the sweetness and grace of God and His people, the church does all of that. Not biting. I'm talking about respecting you, esteeming you, loving you, obeying you, submitting to you, and thanking you. This is dangerous territory for a proud man, isn't it? You get that kind of feedback because it's commanded by the head of the church to the people of the church, and you're the recipient of that as a proud man, and that's dangerous. How will... An elder handle that in the church? Does he see that as grace or as license to step up his authority and exceed the bounds of delegated authority? The only clue you might have is what happens in his home. In the church, a spiritual leader that oversteps and misuses his authority as he shepherds the flock of God is roundly and severely rebuked in Scripture, isn't it? Think of Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of Israel, the sheep are hungry, they're sick, they're sickly, they're diseased, they're wandering, they're afraid, they're being taken advantage of, and Christ demands his sheep back. And one of the most blistering indictments of arrogant spiritual leadership. Of course, there's Matthew 23 in many places in the Gospels where Christ takes on the Pharisees. Same description from Ezekiel 34. They're overbearing, they're harsh, they're hypocritical, they're vindictive. And and in Matthew 23 are the woes against that kind of spiritual leadership. 1 Peter 5, talking about the motivation of uh, um, uh, elder leadership in verses 1 through 5. There's the good motivations, and then there are those who are self-serving They do it for personal gain. They're manipulative. They're heavy-handed. No place is Jesus more explicit in his condemnation of people in harshest terms than spiritual leaders who take advantage of their people, who don't understand the limits of their authority. A man who does ministry like this is likely exercising arrogant authority where? In his home. And perhaps that signal was missed when he was being appointed to the office of elder. You do not want this kind of leadership over your church, do you? 
I hope not. And how do you avoid that? You find men, qualified elders, who manage their households well with purpose and humility. In the home, is this leadership overbearing? Is it pugnacious? Is it aggressive? Is it angry? Offensive? Provoking children? Provoking his wife? Or is it humble? So, a man who manages his household well, as an indication that he can serve as an elder in the church, is that he's purposeful, he's humble, and then number three, he's strong and courageous. And you might say, this is a strange one. But let me develop this for a minute. Strength and courage, as described in the Bible, is not a function of your intelligence, your clever ideas, your physical strength, or your social position. It is entirely based on confidence in the Lord and submission to His commands. This is the ultimate application of humble leadership in the home. A man who manages his home well will be challenged and at times even rejected. Convictions will be tested. Any lack of conviction will be exposed. And sometimes that opposition is from within. Your wife, your children. They are sinners and they will disregard, ignore, challenge, and oppose your leadership at times. And there's times probably when they should, huh? Sometimes the opposition to what you're doing in your home is from without. And this is increasing in our culture. It's from the culture. You're leading families in a culture that are openly, that that culture is openly and actively in opposition to God's design for marriage and for the roles of men and women. They don't want you to live those roles and they sure don't want you to teach your children that. The culture will challenge the sovereignty of your family, the role of mom and dad, the purpose you are called to pursue and the right to discipline and the method of discipline that you exercise in your home. And let me be clear, I'm being polite when I say the culture. The culture is really who? Satan. We say that on the authority of a lot of scripture, but particularly Ephesians 2, where it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to who? The prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You are up against none other than Satan himself. The culture will fill your children's heart. They'll feed it with godless worldviews and philosophies that oppose the truth of God's word. Satan is against you and your purpose, which is really the Lord's purpose. And I'm not advocating a siege mentality. I'm just highlighting the challenges and the opportunities and explaining why a man who manages his household well is strong and courageous. I don't know that it really, in previous generations, required the strength and courage that it does now. Regardless of the obstacles and the opposition, biblical leadership at home is not optional. The purposes we've talked about are not optional. We need to be strong and courageous. A man who cannot demonstrate strength and courage in his home 
in the face of opposition from his wife, his five-year-old, or Satan. (laughs) Probably isn't ready for leadership in the church. I remember my wife and I saying to each other fairly regularly, remember who the five-year-old is and who the 30-year-old is. Okay? There is no room for fear. Be strong and courageous. That's leadership. That's manhood. And a man who cannot demonstrate that in his home surely cannot be reasonably expected to demonstrate that kind of leadership in the church. And we saw a whole lot of that in 2020. We need to understand what strength and courage means. It's not based on physical prowess. I've already said that. Wisdom, your intelligence, as used in the Bible, strength and courage is action that involves the promises of God, the responsibility of man, which is to obey, just do what you're told, and the peace that comes from knowing the providence of God, that the Lord will do what is good in His sight. Deuteronomy 31 is a great passage. First five verses talks about how Joshua is going to lead the people across the Jordan River. And speaking of that and the expected opposition, this is what God says to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Enjoy the ride. Is that what it says? The next phrase is, Do not fear or be dismayed. You see, anytime you see the description of strength and courage, it's you have a job to do. In that passage, it says, you shall do, you shall go, you shall give. You look at the verbs. Joshua, you have work to do. Be strong and courageous three times. And then it says, no fear, no dismay. Why? Why are you strong and courageous? Well, I highlighted it as I read it. Because the Lord goes ahead of you. He will not fail you. He has already given it to you. This isn't just a great story about Joshua leading Israel over the Jordan into the promised land. This is about your home and my home. Later on in Deuteronomy 31, verse 23, there's the commissioning of Joshua as the leader. Verse 23 says, Then God commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people out of the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. And that one, uh, actually two verses, it's really clear. You have work to do. He tells them what I want you to do. You heard that. And then he tells them, Be strong and courageous. And then he tells them why. What's the why? I will be with you. Everywhere in Scripture we are, that we are called to be strong and courageous, and there's a lot of places, it's in that context, not about what we're going to do other than obey. It's about what God's going to do. You lead your wife whether she appreciates it or not because that's what God told you to do. Be strong and courageous. You lead those children 
especially teenage children, with strength and courage. They may not like it. They may not agree. They may not support your leadership at times, but you do it anyway. Why? Because God told you to. And then may the Lord do what is right in His sight. Anemic leadership in the church in America is rampant. 2020 was just the prelude, I think, to the coming attacks on the church. Lord, give us men with strength and courage. Amen? The current cave-in to weak doctrine and woke social justice and feminist ideology in the church is just another illustration of feckless church leadership by men who are afraid. These churches are led by men who fearfully respond to politics, opposition, pressure, and a deep desire for no confrontation. Just get along. And to the extent they know truth, these pastors and elders are willing to compromise because they're afraid. First Timothy tells us we can fully expect to find that same form of leadership where? In their home. The flip side is you want men in your church? on your elder board, pastoring your church, who will stand up in this culture and be strong and courageous, where do you look? In their home. So a man who manages his household well, is purposeful, he's humble, and he's strong and courageous. Number four, he leads by example. Another way to say it bluntly is he's not a hypocrite. He leads by example. Imitation is biblical. It's the design of Scripture. um, Command to you and I on how we become like Christ. You imitate others. 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I what? Imitate Christ. Back to Deuteronomy 6. I know you're familiar with this passage. Leadership in your home is by example Look at or think listen to this in verse 5 you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might you get the point first line is all about you and me these words which i'm commanding you today shall be on your heart that's step 1 step 2 verse 7 you shall teach them diligently to your sons And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you just look at the personal pronouns in that passage of scripture, it's incredibly convicting. A man who manages his household well is an example not just in the leadership of his wife, but in the leadership of his children. Are you an an example? Would your wife and children testify to your integrity and the consistency of your life? Do you live life in such a way that there is no disparity between what you say and how you live? This is a hard one, isn't it? Nobody knows you in this regard better than that family unit. And you may think your kids don't see it. They do. Good or bad. And they're watching you. 
When you tell your kids to get good grades, are you a diligent worker yourself? Do they know that you're pursuing the same excellence in your work that you're expecting them to pursue in theirs? When you try to teach your children to tell the truth, do you tell the truth? Do you exaggerate? Do you lie? When the phone rings, do you tell them, I'm not home? When you tell your children to obey, do your children see you as a submissive, obedient man yourself? When you tell your kids, do your chores, take out the trash, whatever it might be, are you an example of service in the home yourself? 1 Corinthians 16, 13 is a verse I know you've heard before many times. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I played football many millennia ago. I can't tell you how many rah-rah talks before the game, somebody would come in and read this verse. Act like men, ooh, score touchdowns. Obviously, that's not what this is about. But I want, I want you to note something here. That verse summarizes manhood in every way. But it's not written to men. You understand that? Let me read that again. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And it's really a call to the men be an example because I'm going to tell the church to look at you. And it starts in the home. You want to point an, uh, appoint an, an elder, you want to be an elder, where you're on the alert, standing firm in the faith, and you can be, and you are a man that others can follow, starts at home. If that's not you at home, you're not an elder an indication that you're not ready to be an elder. Have verses written to the church, and that's a New Testament, be strong and courageous. Act like men. Are you men that your church can look to and follow you as you follow Christ and you point them to Christ? Is that true in your home? You know, I think of of a friend of mine right now been married a few years. I met him on his wedding day. I went to a wedding with my wife. Maybe you can relate to this. These were not my people. I was being a good husband. Well, I met this friend at that wedding. He happened to be the groom. And we've become very close friends. And today, I think he's in year three, maybe more than that, of serving his wife in a way he never could have imagined as she's dying of cancer. And watching him love this woman, care for her, give himself up for her. What a testimony to his his kids. What a testimony to his wife. What a testimony to me. And now what a testimony to you. That's how it works, that we see people living these principles in real life, not in an idyllic situation or circumstances, 
but in great difficulty. And we look at that and we say, that is being like Christ. I'm going to follow that. That's what you and I are called to. You want elders in the church who the church can look to as an example? See if his children do. See if his wife does. Number five, he's a servant. He is a servant. The world says a leader is served, doesn't it? That's why people aspire to leadership. They want to be served. They want to be special. The Bible says a leader serves others constantly in every area of life, 24-7. Some elders and pastors have been known to be such great servants at church that they have no time for the home. And that has tragic results. Tragic results. It's a dangerous error. Service happens. Here's the point of of 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. Service happens first at home, chronologically and in priority. Chronologically, what I mean by that is he demonstrates his service at home first as a qualification to serve in the church. And I say in priority Because even as an elder or a pastor, our primary responsibility is to serve our wife and our children. Do you want servant leaders in the church? Examine how a man serves his family at home. Matthew 20, 25, um, you're familiar with this passage too. It's the example of Christ and it's the linkage between authority and service. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? Servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's our model, men. We are to love our wife as Christ loved what? The church. And there's the description. Service. Ephesians 5, again, rereading this passage. We're to be servants in marriage. Listen to all of these verbs. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, presenting to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. If you just go through that passage, focus on the verbs. That's the service. We're to love her, says it three times. We're to give ourselves up for her. Cleanse her, sanctify her, present her, nourish her, cherish her. Men, we made a choice when we got married. You may not have realized it, but you gave yourself up for her. It's what you said you would do. Again, you may not have realized it, but your wife knows. She also knows whether you're keeping that vow. You want to teach your sons how to be a man? 
show sacrificial service to him and his mom, that's biblical manhood. You want to teach your daughters what she needs to know to marry a good and godly man someday that will care for her? Be an example. Show her what it looks like in your sacrificial service to her and her mom. A prospective elder must demonstrate that he goes beyond the narrow perspective that says, hey, I bring home a paycheck, that's my service. That's not the sum and substance of service in the home. You don't want leadership like that. It is ungodly and it's not biblical. Caring for the church is service. It's not top-down supervision and management. And how a man manages his household is a tell, if you will, about how he's going to care for the church. And we can't miss that. Number six, and finally, he honors marriage. He honors marriage. And I know I, it, this might sound like I'm going to be redundant, and I might be, but Hebrews 13.4 says that marriage is to be held in what? Honor. We are called to honor marriage. And I want to explore for just a few remaining minutes what that means. Because as you examine a man's home, how he manages his home, the question you should be asking is, do I honor marriage? Do they honor marriage? And Hebrews 13.4, by the way, is part of the recitation of Christian ethics in verses 1 through 6. It's a phenomenal passage. It talks about how you're supposed to love people in the church people outside the church, how you honor marriage, moral purity, your strength and courage, how you handle money. Verses 1 through 6 is incredible. Again, that's another session, but it culminates in verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the results of their conduct, Imitate their faith. There is not a more concise description of spiritual leadership anywhere in the Bible than Hebrews 13, 7. You lead, you speak the word of God, and you're an example. And part of that is to honor marriage. There's no more regular or common counseling issue. It's incessant. It never ends. You know what that counseling issue is in the church? Marriage and family. Those of you that are involved in marriage, not in marriage, but in the church, know there's not a more volatile, sensitive, difficult, recurring issue than marriage and family. Our responsibility and delegated authority as elders, as it's described in Hebrews 13, 7, is to speak the word of God and what? Be an example. The church is told to remember you, that you're the one that led them, that you're the one that spoke the word of God to them, not your opinions, not your formulas, not your philosophies. You spoke the word of God to them and that they can consider the results of your conduct and thereby imitate your faith. That is the power, if you will, of spiritual leadership in the church. In the same way we don't save anyone, we don't fix marriages, do we? 
We can't. I hope you understand that. Maybe that's a great relief to some of you. But we do bring the Word of God to bear, and by God's own prescription, we're to bring a powerful personal example of marriage. Not in perfection, by the way, of course, but certainly in pattern. Without one or the other of those two elements of that formula, speaking the Word of God and living an example, an elder or a pastor is ineffective. You must keep this in mind as you appoint elders, as you consider your own eldership, your own service in the church. Do you honor marriage and do you conduct your home accordingly? For the world to see. Several ways to honor marriage. I'll just go through these really quick. First, you honor marriage by being a one-woman man. 1 Timothy 3.2. I read it to you. It says, an overseer then, an elder then, must be above reproach the husband of one wife. The literal translation of that is a one-woman man, singularly wholly focused on and devoted to one woman. That's God's perfect design. It's the design from the Garden of Eden. And that design, by the way, wasn't just good. The Bible said it was very good. And all God's married men said? There you go. It's interesting to me that that follows right after saying that you and I are to be above reproach. There should never be an accusation in this area that sticks. Your church shouldn't wonder if you're a one-woman man. Your children shouldn't wonder if you're a one-woman man. Your wife should never wonder if she's the woman the only woman, for a lay elder like me, my coworkers, clients, other people that I interact with more than I interact with anybody in the church sometimes should never wonder if I'm a one-woman man. Another way to honor marriage is moral purity. Moral purity honors marriage. In fact, in Hebrews 13, 4, It says marriage is to be held in honor among all. And it goes on to say, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Man, if that doesn't scare you, I don't know whatever would. Especially if you're an elder, a pastor. If there is something amiss, there is not moral purity in your life, I promise you, I promise you it will be exposed unless you're not saved. The Lord disciplines those who he loves and he goes after the shepherds who do not shepherd well. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that the Lord is the avenger in all these things. He's the judge. He's the avenger. That's how we honor marriage. And I guess that's a motivation, a motivation for being morally pure. But the man who manages his house well knows this. He obeys this. And he's a man who conducts his relationship and his his life to avoid any reproach in the area of moral purity. Not just to avoid the judgment and the avenging of a holy God 
but to be an example to those in the church. I cannot ever imagine looking my three daughters in their eyes and telling them I've been unfaithful. Can you imagine having to look at your church in the eyes and say that? Moral purity inside of marriage honors marriage. That's what we're called to do. That's how you manage your household well. Another one, another way to honor marriage is by enjoying marriage. Enjoying marriage. And some of the younger married guys in the room might be saying, wow, that's easy. Enjoy the honeymoon. Enjoy marriage. It's commanded in Scripture. Did you know that? There's a reason it's commanded in Scripture, because you can fall into the routines of life, get distracted from the single most important earthly human relationship God has given you, and you forget. You forget what a blessing marriage is. Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Ecclesiastes 9 goes stronger and says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And this goes back to Genesis 2 where it makes very clear, pre-sin, by the way, that you and I were created to toil. Did you know that? And it was good. That's God's creation. That's his design. Again, another session. But in the midst of that lifelong toil that the curse changed the purpose of, but didn't change the nature of, is the gift of a woman, a wife. We are called to enjoy life in the midst of the toil with her. You and I need to decide and choose to enjoy marriage. We need to lead our wife in such a way that she can enjoy marriage. That's on you. That's on me. We need to show our children that marriage is fun. Marriage is a gift. Marriage is dying in our culture because there's too few people that demonstrate any level of the joy and the peace and the help that comes from marriage. Marriage is not miserable. And I hope you're an example of that. It's what the church needs to see. You and I are called to live in a fishbowl. It's what pastors do. And the marriage that you are in should be part of that fishbowl. Don't hide it from people. It honors marriage when you enjoy marriage. And Ecclesiastes 9 says, there's a caveat here. It says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love. And some might say, well, I don't love her anymore. And I just want you to know that one of the ways you honor marriage is by loving your wife. And we've been through that many times, many ways in the short time we've had to give together. You give yourself up for her, for life, totally. No hesitations, no holding back. And the first people to attest to the evidence of that love is the elder's wife and his children. Your children should leave your home and tell others that they saw a marriage that they want to emulate, that mom and dad loved each other, and that dad loved mom 
No question, no hesitation, not in perfection, but in clear pattern, dad loved mom. Ephesians 5, 25 to 33 basically says four times, guys, love your wife. And I'm convinced Paul put it in there four times because we're a little slow. Get the message. And it's commanded. We're told to love our wife four times because it is easy to forget to love our wife, isn't it? It is not as it should be. An elder should be known for the love he has for the wife of his youth. You prom- that's what you promised at your wedding and probably what you promised before the wedding to get that sweet lady down the aisle. You made vows. Do you remember your vows? There's someone who paid really close attention to the vows you made at your wedding. Maybe your wife. But a man who manages his household well doesn't just love his wife because he should. He does so as a demonstration of his integrity. He's a man of his word. He keeps his vows. He demonstrates to his children he is willing. He is a willing and joyful, long, lifelong commitment to fidelity and love for his wife because he promised it. Ecclesiastes 5 4 says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. It's foolish to make careless commitments and promises and foolish and thoughtless commitments define a man of no integrity. Psalm 15 makes this really clear. A man of integrity is honest, consistent, utterly reliable because it says that he swears to his own hurt and does not change. You made that vow. You keep that vow. I keep that vow. In other words, I I shouldn't make commitments and once made provide for any possibility or reason to ever step back from that commitment. We need to love our wife. What a testimony to the church, by the way, and what a testimony to a watching world. In both of those venues, think about how unusual it is to know a married couple that genuinely loves each other all the days of their married life, in the good times and in the bad, good health and cancer. That's how God designed marriage, and that's the picture of Christ's love for his church, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 13 describes it. You've probably read this at weddings you've done. This is supposed to be our our love for our wife. It's patient. It's kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. does not take into account a wrong sufferer. does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things love never fails is your love going to fail we understand it will at times don't we we're not saying that you're looking for jesus to be on your elder board and i say that with seriousness but we're looking for men who is a pattern of their life honor marriage and part of honoring marriage is they love their wife I'm just going to stop there. I have more, but we're over time. The point of 1 Timothy 
three, four and five is this. You want to know how a man's going to lead in the church? Look at his home. If it isn't happening in the home, don't pretend that it's going to happen in the church. It might happen in the church for a while. And you don't get to make the decision that, well, he has potential, the home will follow eventually. Because 1 Timothy 3 says these qualifications are a what? Must. Don't play with fire. Let me close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word. I pray that I might not have confused the clarity of your word today. Lord, I pray for each of the men in this room who are pastors and elders. Lord, cause each of us to examine ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would encourage the men in this room, the men who are faithfully managing their home. Lord, I pray that they would excel still more, that their church would appreciate their example, that by your grace that example would, would remain and even increase. Lord, all of this to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, who we love and who we want to honor. In Christ's name, amen.